Welcome to the City's Playground podcast, a podcast by Leadership Foundations. That is my best Rick and Lowe impression. I am Noah. No, that's pretty good. That's pretty <laughs> good. You, I'm, uh, I'm Noah Basket here at the LF Leadership Foundations Global Office here in Tacoma, Washington uh, with Dave Hillis. Dave, good to have you. Noah, great to have you. And uh, again, it certainly should be shared that Rick is impossible to replace Having said that, you uh, have taken the uh, the podcast up a whole new grade here over the last now what is it year and a half that you've been working yeah. with Rick and I? Yeah, it's been a that feels like a couple of years. Yeah, it's been fun. There's been um, so many good conversations over the last couple of years when we think about yeah the territory theological that we've covered, the kind of geographical ground. We think about all of the leaders we've been able to interview over. Uh, throughout the world that are doing remarkable work through the uh, LF Global Network. So yeah, it's a gift. Yeah, I don't have I don't have his radio voice. Uh, no, nobody has Rick's radio <laughs> voice. <laughs> and he's uh, yeah, no nobody replaces Rick. But it's still good to be here, and it's good to have the conversation with you, Dave. So and you are uh, you're like uh, a month into this whole sabbatical thing by now, isn't that right? I am almost. I think just yeah, a little bit over a month and. I think as we shared with the listeners here uh, at our last podcast that the board uh, in a very gracious way, uh, after 14 years of being president of leadership foundations, I think uh, I took stock of my own level of energy. I think they took stock of my level of energy and very graciously gave me a six month paid sabbatical. Uh, although our guest today will remind everybody that it is a working sabbatical. Um, and what <laughs> defines that work is that we will be uh, looking to see uh, in what ways LF can continue to, you know, I think in some ways curate the uh, thought leadership that we have developed now over the last, you know, half dozen years where, you know, we find ourselves increasingly being invited into tables to talk about pretty significant stuff that really affects yep. a city as it wants to become more like a playground rather than a battleground. So yeah, over just as an example, uh, just this last week, uh, there was a group of us down at Mount Angel Abbey, uh, which of course, Noah, you were a part of that mm -hmm. for a bit, but, you know, talking about, I think some really substantive issues that um, need, need people of faith to be thinking about them. And LF, I think, is uniquely positioned to be able to bring disparate voices together, people with different angles on the issue, uh, but that can and are trying to figure out how to play uh, together. So that will be what I'm working on over the next six months. That's great. That's great. Yeah, some people uh, spend their sabbaticals on white sandy beaches with cocktails <laughs> with little, uh, umbrellas. little umbrellas. And some people go to Benedictine monasteries and wax theological. With cocktails, by the way. So <laughs> the, the cocktail is universal. It's ubiquitous. It'll follow us everywhere. Yep. Yep. Well, um, well, maybe uh, just remind our listeners, Dave, uh, if you could, a little bit of this series that we've been doing. You know, we've been um, kind of exploring this idea of tension and where it shows up in the life of uh, the work of leadership foundations and seeing the world's cities uh, become more like God's playgrounds. Um, and I know we kind of dived into one particular tension, dialogue, whatever you want to call it, between, uh, on the one hand, Bible, Scripture, um, and the newspaper. So maybe you could remind us a little bit of what we uh, 
which you and Rick talked a little bit about last time. Yep, absolutely. No, and, and let me just back up and give a word about tension or actually the word that I think is even better for us is contradiction. Um, Thomas Merton, who's one of the people that I read continually talks about that it actually is in contradiction where God's will begins to emerge and we begin to get a shape, a sense of a shape of God's will. <clears throat> and of course, the irony there is that when a contradiction shows up in your life, the first thing you want to do is to lessen it, uh, perhaps even get rid of it. Yeah. So I think right at the very beginning to say to our listeners, um, when you put your finger on that tension or that contradiction in your life, um, welcome it. Uh, I think the Rumi poem, um, you know, says it well, you know, anything, right. That comes to your door, welcome it, mm -hmm. uh, as a gift from beyond. I think the poem's called a guest house. Mm -hmm. Um, so that's, that, I think that's important because there is a strain of Christianity that almost prides itself on, like I said, lessening these, uh, contradictions yeah. or these tensions. Yeah. And I think in the very act of doing it, while I think it is probably uh, heartfelt, they want to help somebody in their particular sort of struggle. Uh, <clears throat> ultimately, they do, I think, a kind of violence uh, to what ultimately would have been God's, uh, God's will in their lives. So <clears throat> that's just some preface to any kind of contradiction or tension that you live with. Um, again, I think it's everything from you know, raising kids and you want to care and take care of them. And you know that at some point, uh, right, you have to begin to uh, facilitate. How do they become interdependent, right? And yeah. adults, um, you know, you feel that in a marriage, right? Where there is certainly a union that has been made, but you have to also figure out time and place for yourself to mm -hmm. continue to grow as an mm -hmm. individual. So we could trot down that list a long way. Mm -hmm. One of those in mission, I think, is this notion of Bible uh, and newspaper. And again, famously, although nobody has ever been able to track it down, it was Karl Barth that said that, and that the proper posture of a Christian is to let the Bible in one hand and the newspaper in another hand talk with one another. Yeah. Often, I think, you know, when you think about that, more often than not, it's we just let the Bible talk um, and we don't have a newspaper. And part of it, I think, is because we're a bit uncomfortable at times. Uh, I think within, you know, the circles that we travel, um, what the newspaper represents ultimately is what I would describe as anthropology. Um, anthropology is that science of what makes people tick. Um, and so... Again, I think we have lost that. And a part of what Leadership Foundations, I think, does really well is we've recovered uh, anthropology, uh, still having a very, very high view of scripture. Uh, we believe in its authoritative voice, uh, <laughs> but we don't um, believe that it is a complete conversation uh, if you haven't brought in uh, an anthropology or, again, in this case, a newspaper. So, yeah, yeah, that's the idea. Um, you know, I, you know, when people get nervous, uh, about this. I mean, I, you know, again, love Simone Weil, who, uh, wonderful follower of Jesus. Uh, but she asked a, a pretty provocative question, which is a little bit of Simone Weil's kind of thing. And she said, is the Bible, you know, more of a theological book or an anthropological book? 
and her answer to that was, you know, in fact, it's more uh, anthropological. It's not so much, you know, God's thoughts about us. It's our thoughts about God's thoughts about us. And so, again, I think that is important because one of the things it creates is then, I think, a little bit of a humility that allows us to sit here, again, with this contradiction and say, okay, somehow it's going to be in the conversation between the two uh, that we will begin to see uh, the will of God emerge in ways that we can, you know, help our cities become more like playgrounds and battlegrounds. Yeah, I think that's well said, Dave. And um, as you were describing, you know, kind of just the importance of this dialogue with our actual uh, humanity, lived experience, there is, uh, I know many of us have encountered uh, in the Christian world, a kind of spirituality that does just uh, get really afraid of that kind of messy human experience. Yep. And I, you know, in my own life, you know, I, I when I experience those kind of contradictions, I, uh, I oftentimes feel in me that tendency to want to run away or try to clean things up or come up with an easy answer. Yeah. Um, I don't, I think uh, there is something about just the urban experience, right? The city that that is harder to do in some ways, right? There's just mm-hmm. a, all kinds of people from all kinds of walk walks of life. Um, that is a part of the texture of the urban environment. And I wonder if that's part of its gift is us being able to encounter our humanity a little bit more deeply. I think that's very well said. And I do think that is one of the many gifts that the city brings us, um, you know, in effect, it, it, unveils, uncovers uh, Mm -hmm. what this thing is called humanity. Um, It also, I think, if we're willing to pause and see it, um, you know, patterns, you know, of grace begin to emerge as well. Um, And that's, that's the great gift. But I, the thing I would say to our our listeners, uh, no, and I've oftentimes asked it this way, you know, is faith um, more of the way things ought to be, or is it the way things are? Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, what I would argue in the Gospels is as you watch Jesus walk through the four Gospels, uh, and we would certainly attribute to him, you know, a man of faith, that his faith initially manifests itself as, okay, what is actually going on here? Right? So you come to something like a John 5, the guy has been paralyzed for 38 years, Scripture actually tells us that Jesus knew he had been there 38 years, right? Was waiting to try to somehow throw himself into the fount of water and supposedly he would get healed if he was the first one in. I mean, it's a pitiful, pitiful situation. Mm. And uh, Jesus says to the guy, what, what do you want to have happen here? Now, that's either the cruelest question that was ever asked. Mm. It's like, uh, Jesus, the Hello. legs, right? You know, I mean, and, and the fact that you know I've been there 38 years. Yeah. Or Jesus is after something, I think, deeper, even more subterranean. And I would suggest is that what he's trying to get to is, okay, what is the actual psychological, spiritual state of this guy? Because if I just go ahead and heal him, right, without walking through his anthropology, I mean, 
you know, yeah, he'll be healed, but he won't have any sense of the source of that healing. He won't have any sense of its miraculous, you know, reality. Yeah. And ultimately he won't be able to internalize it, I think, moving forward. So again, that's just sort of an argument to say that that faith-filled people, particularly in cities, first step is what's happening, not what should happen. Yeah. Right. Not what did happen but right on. now, what's going on, because it's only in that what's going on moment of articulation that then you can begin to say, okay, now here's how maybe we can apply a biblical principle, right? Or we can yeah. you know, bring in some kind of, you know, yeah, strategy moving forward. Well, that's a good, that's a, that's a good definition of faith that I think could could be a whole series maybe that we dive into again, or just an overlay of this one. But it's also a, a good bridge uh, to this tension that we're going to, or contradiction, right, that we're going to be trying to um, explore a little bit today, which is kind of the, the tension between what we call the street and the academy, right? And um, I'm sure you'll agree with me, Dave, this is one we, we see a lot in the LF network. Um, we do like to talk about things theological and uh, get into sometimes the theory of how things work. Um, but there's also, you know, just the real life on the ground work of the Leadership Foundation's global network that are bringing together people of good faith and goodwill, building capacity, developing joint initiatives, meeting real needs in the cities that we serve. And so there is just this on the street reality um, and that's that's a little bit unique about us too, right? So I think there's probably something that LF has grasped as the important part of living into this tension. But yeah, how would you how would you name that, or where did that come about from your perspective, and yeah. how LF sees the city? Yeah, it's so there's there's parts of this, Noah. And so this answer maybe will be a little bit long, but mm-hmm. um, one of the things that I think our listeners have listened to time and again is that part of my job over the last 14 years has been to grab a hold of what was that original charism mm-hmm. that that the Holy Spirit gave uh, initially Sam Shoemaker and then, of course, Reed Carpenter and the rest of us. The interesting thing about Sam and Reed is that they are, you know, from two different universes. Um just again, a little bit on Sam. I mean, a Harvard educated, <clears throat> I mean, silver spoon in his mouth, um, New York City, you know, Princeton. I mean, yeah. by the time he got to Phil or uh, to Pittsburgh, you know, <clears throat> he was the he was the chaplain of the city. But important is that he was the chaplain of the wealthy, the powerful. Um, he had an instinct, right, that somehow the whole city needed to kind of come together. But Sam had no real working theology of the poor. Mm-hmm. Um, that was not, you know, he was down at the Duquesne Club and, uh, you know, important conversations, very erudite, um, a wonderful author. I mean, you just go on down the punch list of his resume and then read Carpenter. Yeah. <laughs> You know, we all know Reed. We've had it on the podcast, but I mean, Reed's from the other side of the town. Um, I mean, Reed, you know, got to this whole thing because of the poor, right? It was, you know, St. Vincent de Paul is his patron saint. Um, And 
read if, if you Larry, who we'll talk with here in a minute, and of course, no, you've talked to him a little bit, but Reed is the quintessential sort of non-establishment, uh, non-erudite. Um, will tell a joke in a minute anywhere, most of the time inappropriately. Mm. Um, <clears throat> but the street just, it, it's almost like an aroma in Reed. And the reason I bring this up is I think I say to, you know, our network all the time, um, you've got both in you. Yeah. And own it. Be true to it. Don't don't think you're more one or the other. Now, I would say this, and I think Larry will agree with me. Um, over the last number of years, because Reed had been president, of course, we began to kind of get more into the space of let's just get stuff done. Mm -hmm. uh, that's our that's our wheelhouse, right? LF's got boots on the ground, and let's let's you know get out there and uh, you know take numbers and yeah. get things. Done. Yeah. Part of I think my job in the last 14 years is to say, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm I'm all in that. But don't let go of this Sam Shoemaker part of you that would, I think, beg the question, reflect on this spectacular activity of yours. Um, ask the question why. Because that's the lane. I think that's the lane that LF plays in that very, very few groups do that we mm. We have this activist streak, we have this street level credibility, but we can turn around and say, there's actually a big theological idea or two that are the animating force for why we do our activity in the first place. Yeah. And I'll make the argument here a little bit later that something like mentoring of which, no, you've been a big part of, mm -hmm. I think we have gotten to a level that is is wonderful, but we're not a mentoring organization. I mean, we do mentoring, but the real strength of us is the way we think about mentoring as a vehicle to develop leadership for the spiritual and social renewal of cities. That's the theological import. And that's what I think, you know, really helps us. So, you know, just as an aside, part of what Larry will want me to do, I think, with LF moving forward is continue, Dave, to, you know, get us to ask that deeper, you know, theological, philosophical question of not, you know, always just how, but why we do how, what we do. So that's well said. Yeah. And I think about even what you described, Dave, in terms of the life of faith. Uh, yeah. Being really about what is, then those questions that you're describing sort of the why is also dealing with the what, what actually is going on so that we can run that for sure program or whatever it is more effectively. Yeah. Do you, uh, <laughs> I imagine you might uh, be able to point to a place or two where this kind of tension is alive and well in, uh, uh, in scripture, anything kind of come to you in particular? Well, I, I would just say that, you know, this would be one of the major motifs going back to Genesis all the way through Revelation, yeah. you know, is going to be the, the uh, yeah, I would say that the inherent contradiction um, of being given this pattern of life uh, that, you know, God has kind of tried to describe um, and that it is something that demands, you know, a wholeheartedness 
And by that, it means that it not only captures your heart and your mind, but everything. So mm-hmm. when, you know, the great Didaka is recorded in, in the Old Testament, it's like, love your Lord, your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. I mean, there's a, a very real sense in which this is not a head game by itself. Um, it involves the head. It involves the mind. It's a whole whole being game. And so with that, right, in every good Jewish you know, person knew, right. That those are the two great commandments, but then the civil war breaks out. Right. And inevitably it's going to be, you know, taken up and people like the Pharisees and the Sadducees and, you know, the Essenes and, and nobody wants to keep the whole cloth together. And so, you know, some run to the head, right. The, the Pharisee or the Sadducees, some run to the, you know, more active part, which would be the Essenes or the zealots. Um, Jesus, I think, appears, though, to say where the real vulnerability is, is when we begin to um, cease to have what it is that God is asking us to do uh, to be lived out in real life. So, you know, a place I would point people is is, uh, the 23rd chapter of Matthew. Um, Not a fun read. It should be added here on the front end. It's really where Jesus, you know, probably most graphically takes uh, the religious establishment um, to task. Mm-hmm. And what he does, and this is where the seven woes, you know, comes and the bewares. And, um, you know, this is in the red letter edition, right, of the, of the Bible. This got, it has got the most red letter in it. Um, but it's, it's Jesus just walking through, you know, they tell you to do this. Um, but they don't do anything about it in terms of actually helping you fulfill it. So curiously, Jesus never says you, you are getting the law wrong, right? Your interpretation is false. Where he really runs is to say, no, you, you have it, but now involve yourself in it, right? Get, get going, get busy. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's, let's try to make sure that uh, this kind of whole cloth that was given to us in the Old Testament is still, you know, a whole cloth. Mm-hmm. So um, I, uh, yeah, every time I come to that place in the scripture, you no, know, there's, there's always, I think, a part of me that feels like I'm being called up myself. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, am well aware um, daily. Uh, it feels like at the daylight between, you know, what I think about something and what I'm actually living and, uh, always trying to, you know, to close that gap. Yeah. The, one, the one thing I would say, and this is a, a big idea, uh, and I, I think you can intuit this in Jesus. And this is the contribution of a Rene Girard, who we've talked about in the mm-hmm. past, and a James Allison. But part of mimesis in the mimetic world um, is that it means in a very concrete way that we are relational before we are rational. Um, and one of the things that I think a proper reading of the scripture does is it takes that instinct in us that wants to believe it's kind of from the head, yeah, right. And then somehow maybe a Reaganomics trickle down approach to, you know, <laughs> theology and Christian living and it'll, it'll trickle down. And what Jesus does in this 23rd, you know, chapter, uh, but again, I would say throughout the scripture is he inverts that, Flips it, yeah. right. And it's got to. It's got to come in to us, 
relationally. Um, and once it takes hold, right, then it can begin to, I think, shape our, our mind and our thought about it moving forward. So it's not to say that thinking about it isn't important, but it's a question of sequencing. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, you are a part of my relationality that has allowed me to kind of go, oh, so that's what that might mean. You know, Larry Lloyd, who's mm-hmm. been a mentor of mine for, you know, I'm not even going to say how, how many years, uh, but, you know, he has relationally shaped me so that now I think about things in a certain way. Um, so I think that's a big piece of this academy uh, and street. And, you know, in that sense, Reed had it right. His instinct was street, then academy, Yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, and part of my job has been absolutely, I affirm that, but don't avoid the academy Yeah, because we have to get there as well. Allow there to be some rigor too. Yeah. Your, uh, your description of kind of relationality preceding rationality and how we learn. I know this is a, a James Allison metaphor, but just, you know, the example of how you learn to ride a bike, right? Like you, you don't know how you don't go read, don't read the manual. No, you don't go read the manual that you could, you could, but you still aren't going to be able to read a bike, but you yeah. get on there and sort of, you likely have some caring, loving adult. that's kind of helping keep your balance. And eventually uh, they let go or the training wheels come off and slowly, slowly yeah. you learn how to do this thing. Um, thanks to other people. And that is, yeah, yeah it's just a, such a good reminder of how learning actually takes place. And so, Um, yeah, maybe this dialogue between head and heart, uh, street and academy, it's just, it's a part of a a bigger whole. Well, I think that's a good little segue to a guest that we have here with us, uh, today in, uh, your successor, Reverend Dr. Larry Lloyd, which we are really glad to to have. So my boss now and uh, president of Leadership Foundation. So we are really excited to have you with us here, Larry. But maybe um, before I, we turn the mic over for Larry to introduce himself, Dave, could you mind just saying a couple words of uh, who uh, who this person is? I will. Um, and again, let me preface this by saying that for those that either read the announcement uh, or even heard Rick and I last time, um, I think one of the biblical images that uh, really guided this whole succession process was this notion that Paul, uh, when he talks about his ministry, talked about it as having run the good race, right? He also talks about a fight, but I'm more, um, I like the race idea metaphor better. And what I said to people is, you know, when I was younger, I used to think, yeah, good on you, Paul, you good sprinter, good marathoner, whatever the race was that he was running. But I always thought about it as an individual race. And as I've gotten older, um, I've said, I don't think so. I think actually the race he was referring to was a relay race. If that's true, then the most important part in a relay race is the baton pass. So uh, that, I think, has become important. Um, And I want to kind of hold that here for a minute. Um, With Larry, uh, it's it's interesting. I would not be on the uh, in leadership foundations if it wasn't for Larry Lloyd. Larry and I had a chance uh, in the '80s to meet each other on the Young Life staff. Um, I've Larry's heard this story before. I've told it that uh, you know Larry was a a bit of a uh, urban legend. 
at that time. And one of the ways that Verley Sangster, who's a good friend of both mine and Larry's, would use Larry is that he, they would send him out to look at this different urban work and basically see if, if it's going okay. So Larry got the assignment to come out and see what's, uh, what's this boy doing out in the Northwest. And, and uh, so I had a Young Life Club that night. Uh, Cornelius Williams, who, of course, is with us and our Leadership Foundation in Atlanta was there that night. And, you know, what I think Larry noticed right away <clears throat> is that I had been doing that part of the Young Life work called contact work, you know, pretty effectively, right? Room is full of, of kids. Um, but <clears throat> I got up in my wonderfully non-musical way to lead these kids in singing, because this was going to be the Young Life Club. And Young Life <clears throat> was, you know, famous for both its music, its, you know, kind of comedic sort of display, and then its its talk. Um, I thought, well, it's urban, right? You, you, know, you just can almost kind of just run by that. So I had my guitar up there and I think what Bono said, you know, the key is three chords and the truth. I had like maybe a half a chord. Um, <laughs> and so I'm trying to get him to sing and the whole bit, but it didn't matter to me because it's like, I'm just going to get to the talk and off we go. And as I sit down thinking I'd done my job, all of a sudden, Larry, who's just observing says, hey, Dave, do you mind if I just maybe help a little bit here with music? And it's like, Sure, but you're not going to do any better than I. And I had no idea about Larry's resume. I mean, <laughs> within certainly a minute, it might even have been 15 seconds, Larry has got this entire room singing in a way that I did not think that they were capable of. Wow. Clapping. I mean, dividing up into, I forget <laughs> what you call that, where they're singing with each other. Yeah. I mean, it was just, it was just unbelievable. So anyways, that was mine and Larry's first encounter of each other. And I was uh, rightfully put in my place. And, uh, and effectively what Larry was saying is don't cut these kids short, right? Don't cut these kids short, give them everything you got. Mm -hmm. um, so both Larry and I kind of, you know, tumbled through young life together. Larry left early. And then of course he came back um, and started the Memphis leadership foundation in 1987, mm -hmm. which for a lot of us watching this whole thing was, was important because one of the ways I tell the, the LF story, our early fathers. So Reed Carpenter, Sam Shoemaker, for sure. But I, uh, Bill, um, uh, Bill's last name, uh, star star, um, couple of others, wonderfully well-intended loving people who saw the injustice of the city, but they were, they were decidedly, uh, suburban people, you know, grabbing the power and trying to somehow get it into the city. Larry was the first within the LF constellation that was in the city and reaching back out to the suburbs. Hmm. And so he became a model to the whole next generation of us, you know, uh, myself and a Chris Martin, a Will McCall, a Howard Eddings, um, because we had all cut our teeth on the streets. Um, you know, we weren't suburban nights. And so it was Larry that really kind of led that way. Um, so Larry, we'll, we'll talk a little bit about his career, but but it's impossible to overstate kind of that, uh, that imprint. Um, 
the uh, about five years ago, um, as Larry was once again uh, moving people into positions of leadership, I said, Larry, it'd be great if you took on uh, the global network impact. And so for the last five years, Larry has essentially been the person on the point for uh, all new leadership foundations, uh, our senior associate uh, strategy, our accreditation process, you know, creating tools and templates. Uh, and his single uh, reality has been, how do we help local leadership foundations increase their mastery of this wheel of change? Uh, so it was just absolutely natural that as I began to step down um, and we looked around real quickly uh, with the respect that Larry has of the network, uh, with his history, with the fact that Memphis Leadership Foundation, you know, in some ways has been a bit of a flagship with regard to, okay, this is what a leadership foundation on steroids can look like if fully funded. It just became a bit of a no-brainer. Um, the last thing I would just say about Larry, there's again this biblical idea that when Jesus first started his ministry, um, it's noticeable or notable that one of the very first things he did is he talked about John the Baptist. And the idea there is that he was, you know, making sure that everyone knew that he stood on someone else's shoulders. Um, that would certainly be true in my relationship. I mean, I'm around today because of uh, standing on Larry's shoulders along with a uh, Reed Carpenter and some others. So Larry's kind of done it all. He, uh, of course, got his D-min from Fuller uh, and wrote a, a urban youth curriculum. He's been a college president. He's run a found, uh, financial foundation, uh, of course, founded the Memphis Leadership Foundation. So it's it's almost one of those resumes that it's hard to find uh, a hole in it, um, right? Uh, and the last thing I'd say just because of this theme, Noah, is that Larry, while different than me, uh, is very much a person who I think represents the academy. Um, he's been a professor at Fuller. Uh, he's started some theological programs himself, but then also has that street credibility as well. So um, with that, Larry, uh, it is wonderful to have you uh, here and um, have a good conversation. Well, thanks, Dave. <clears throat> There are plenty of holes. <laughs> I could fill those in <laughs> a lot. Uh, yeah, it's great to be here. And uh, as Dave indicated, uh, I'm a Miffian. Um, spent six years in at Fuller uh, working with young people in the church and the academy all at the same time. Mm. Wrote an urban youth curriculum in their school of theology. Bill Pinnell was my, uh, my boss and my mentor. Uh, shout out to Bill. He's 92. Uh, mm. Bill doing great work. Great thinker. I've never heard anyone uh, preach like Bill. He, he could turn a phrase like nobody else. He was a fabulous preacher. Um, and of course, he was uh, on stood on the shoulders of Tom Skinner, who is one of our Leadership Foundation heroes, as is Reed and, and Sam, of course. That's right. Um so yeah, six years at, uh, at Fuller and came back to start the Memphis Leadership Foundation in 1987. Uh, I did uh, also start a Christian Community Foundation um, in 1997. And yes, as Dave mentioned, became a college president uh, for five years of a small Christian liberal arts school and then, uh, then back to the Memphis Leadership Foundation and now with Leadership Foundation. So it's been a, uh, had a blast. Um, 
it's uh, uh, been fun, challenging, um, filled with tension of all sorts. Uh, <laughs> contradictions. Contradictions. That's right. And that contradiction was never, never larger or more uh, pungent is a good word than being a college president. I mean, let me tell you about yeah. academia and uh, and the streets. Uh, they do not they do not mesh very well. Well, Larry, you might even say just for our listeners. Um, because you went into that job with a pretty clear vision in mind, and effectively it was to bring the street to the academy. That's right. And so walk us through a bit of that. And Well, you know, a lot of, a lot of Christian colleges started out with, as Bible colleges, uh, really during the 30s, 40s, and 50s, during what I would call the, the great divorce of the church from, from, the, from the public square. Yeah. The, the, you know, the whole... Uh, fundamentalist movement. Uh, a lot of these colleges sprung up to teach young people scripture. And, you know, they were typically not well funded, usually not accredited. Uh, so this this was the history of that college. It started out as a Bible college and became a, a fully accredited with the Southern Association, you know, the, the lead accreditor in the, in the Southern part of the United States. Uh, but it was small. Uh, and it was... Um, it was lily white. <laughs> and, and right in the middle of the city. Right in the middle of the city. And say, say a bit about the demographics of, well, Memphis, of Memphis. Memphis is the largest African-American city in the U.S. Um, in terms of population, uh, 68% African-American and you know 30% or whatever Caucasian. Uh, the city itself is uh, almost 700,000. The county itself, 1.2 million. Um, so I think we're the 41st largest metropolitan area. Uh, often say that uh, the, the United States, 75% uh, of all the uh, Americans live in cities of 50,000 or more. 51% of all Americans live in 41 places. And Memphis is one of those mm. 41 places. So the country is, is, is urban uh, in terms of its demographics. So uh, anyway, the college didn't represent the city. And so I took the college and they asked me to consider being a president. I said, I'll, I'll do that, but it's got to reflect the city. We've got to bring the city into the college if we're really going to uh, be legitimate. And so uh, we did that. And, uh, and it was not without a lot of tension uh, and growing pains, but we did grow the college. Uh, and we began to reflect the city of Memphis, pretty much demographically the same kind of makeup of Latino, uh, African-American, Caucasian students. Um, but what really brought the academy to the street was when we started the Memphis Center for Urban Theological Studies mm -hmm. under the college. Uh, so, uh, yeah, so describe a little bit of that. So yeah, I mean, it's because of my work on the streets for years with Memphis Leadership Foundation, we work a lot with uh, urban churches. And we did a, a, a tremendous job at training youth workers in churches. We trained over 250 youth workers to take the gospel to unchurched kids. But in the process, I had several pastors come to me and say, well, you know, you're, you're working with these, these, young, these youth pastors of ours, and you're getting them 33 hours of college credit, you know, for New Testament and strategic planning and doctrines one, two, and three. We want some of that but we don't want to go to school with our youth workers. <laughs> and uh, so I ran into all these bivocational pastors, which most, most of the African-American Latino churches in Memphis are pastored by men and women who have other jobs. Mm -hmm. and, and because of segregation and racism, 
were not privy to the seminaries or even colleges. I mean, University of Memphis wasn't integrated until the 60s. Hmm. So if you went to college, if you were uh, African-American, you went to college, it was Morehouse or uh, Tennessee State University or Fisk or one of the, you know, historically black universities or colleges. Um, and that was a very, very few people. Hmm. It, was, it was expensive and it's really the, the leadership that got to go to college. But these pastors loved the Lord and loved their communities and uh, wanted some education. So we created the Center for Urban Theological Studies. It's a bachelor's degree in biblical studies or community development uh, at, at, the, at the university as a subset of the university. And um, had about 150 students still. It's still it has been uh, now as part of another university. Uh, but uh, I was a professor. I got some of the leading pastors in Memphis uh, to be professors had, that had their master's degrees. But that also began to sort of uh, cross-fertilize some very affluent suburban masters and doctoral level pastors mm-hmm. now instructing and getting, and getting instructed mm. by pastors in the street. The other thing is the, the our curriculum from the beginning was biblical as well as anthropological. So on one hand, we taught New Testament, Old Testament, as you know, mad work, you know, church history, uh, you know, systematic theology, one, two, and three at the baccalaureate level, but also community development. How you That's move great. from charity to change, for instance, how you move from a food pantry to get a grocery store in your community. We taught, we trained pastors how to teach financial literacy, and then it was actually a course. Mm-hmm. They went through a, a how to, they were trained how to, you know, mortgages and the whole nine yards, and they would teach that to their congregation. Uh, and we taught things like uh, strategic planning, sy- systems thinking. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't. So it's where the where I call the street met the uh, the, the academy yeah. in the in the Memphis of Urban Theological Studies. What did you? in those years find is the biggest obstacle for uh, your students by way of just their theological development? Was it a lack of confidence? Was it a fear of maybe their faith tradition, not um, fully embracing? Give, give us some sense of that. Well, you know, this was, I was president of the college in the early from 2004 through uh, 2009. Uh, I think one of the biggest challenges for the young people is they were that they were disillusioned with the church mm-hmm. because what they were seeing on the campus, which was uh, a totally uh, desegregated, looking like the kingdom of God, their churches didn't look like that, particularly, well, from the African American kids as well as the white kids. And they wondered why. Why are their churches don't look like the city? So I saw a lot of disillusionment uh, with uh, among the uh, among the students. the the uh, The other thing is is how uh, how you integrate uh, a uh, a biblical worldview in a city like Memphis, whether you're going to be a teacher or you're going to go into business. That, that, of course, that's a struggle with every Christian college. I would suspect is okay. We in this biblical worldview, but how does that translate into into daily life? When I go out to buy a car, 
(laughs) or when I choose a neighborhood to live in, or if I get married or where I want to send my kids to school. And so that's, and of course, that's, that's the tension we all have, isn't it? Is how to live out our faith in the public square in a way uh, that's that has integrity, uh, has integrity with the scripture, but also integrity with the newspaper. So we were talking about Carl Bart. Yeah, is how you live that tension out. And I don't, I don't think we, uh, I don't think we ever lose that tension. It's the tension we live with, living out our faith, kingdom values in a secular society. You know, the, the other thing too that I would say, and Larry, you've done this, um, because the first step is one even to recognize the public square and that it's important, right? There's a whole strain of Christianity that is like the public square is the Babylon, you know, the horror of Babylon. It's like stay away from it. And so you get the rise of homeschooling, right? You get the rise of just all these Christian things. On enclaves. Yeah. yeah. The next step that I've watched is like, nope, I'm going to get in that public square um, and be true to my faith, and I'm not going to get scared off by all of that sort of a thing. But what they haven't done yet, which I think is the third step, and I think this is what Elif has always done well, is to say, yeah, show up to the public square, but be additive. <laughs> I mean, get to a place where it's like you're actually making the public square better, mm-hmm. right? I mean, it's not just you Don't get over. Don't be loud. Yeah. 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 Be seasoning. Yeah. And, and Larry, I've watched you again all my life. Just, I mean, you are fearless. Uh, but when you get to the public square, you know, it's not just to kind of get off in the corner. It's to say, let's actually make this public square, you know, a better place, a more additive place. And I think you believe, and I know LF believes this, that the gospel is exactly that. It, it should be adding to the goodness. Oh, yeah. I mean, when Jesus says, you're the salt, the earth, the light of the world, and he talks about the Lord's prayer, my goodness, yeah. the kingdom come on earth is in heaven. If you don't engage the public square, what good are you? Yeah. And uh, I think it was, um, oh, I can't think of who it was now. You'll tell me who it was, but it was uh, Christian. I think Ray Bakke said this, is that Christians are the only ones, we're the only ones that can talk about the sewer system. And talk about the gospel. William Temple, yeah. Oh, yeah, Temple. But, but Ray quoted him. <laughs> Ray, Ray quoted him. <laughs> so, and, and that's right. So, yeah, you yeah, know. Sacred yeah, so it's, uh, for instance, at the Memphis Leadership Foundation years ago, we were, uh, we were uh, asked by the mayor of the city to help out with, uh, with gang, gang intervention. Yeah, uh, we was they got a, a grant from a, a foundation to really uh, do something strategic, and uh, he turned to us and said, "Will you take this program on? Uh, we don't want to pollute. We don't want it politicized. Uh, but it's what's called 901 Block Squad. 901 is our area code, mm-hmm. and the Block Squad are, were uh, all ex gang members." Mm-hmm. And their job was to go into hot spots and try to bring some sort of reconciliation between gangs so that they could stop the violence. And, uh, you know, the mayor asked us to do that. And without blinking, and I always said, absolutely. We went to the board of directors and said, look, you know, they're going to be on our staff. They're not, uh, these, these, some of these gang members are believers that came to some of our youth clubs, youth ministries. Others were not, but they, they had street creds. And yeah, of course we're going to do that because it's for the public good. It makes our city better. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
so many times you're right, Dave, when, when folks come and you're, and you're called an evangelical these days, they, they expect you to sort of, you know, beat them over the head with the Bible. That's yeah. what the Bible says. Well, you, you can do that. You don't get very far. Uh, I don't have to sacrifice what I believe in order to engage the public square, engage the mayor, engage yeah. the police department, engage business community. Uh, for instance, one of the things that Memphis has done well over the years is, is uh, re-entering citizens or ex-offenders getting jobs. Well, the only way we can do that is interface with the, the corporations and the business community and persuade them, some of which were, were run by wonderful Christian men and women who understood second chance. But most of the businesses, you know, they, they need employees. They want good employees. Well, I'm going to talk, you know, I, I can talk theologically about the, the visiting the prisoner and all that. They don't care about that. Mm-hmm. But what we care about is transform lives, and they care about the bottom line. And the two can actually work together. Yeah. Work together. Yeah, absolutely. This whole conversation around Public Square, you've got in Memphis just a, I mean, it's the resume is really long in terms of over however many decades, the different kinds of ways that you all have done that. So you lifted up some of the gang work that you all have been asked to step, you were asked to step into. You talked a little bit about some of the reentry, but maybe just for our listeners that are less familiar with the work of Memphis Leadership Foundation, I mean, you all launched however many nonprofits ministries over the years. Just what, what were some of the ways, some of the influences that you all kind of stepped into the city over the years? Yeah, so affordable housing, for instance, uh, in the in the night. So you, some of my list, some of the listeners may remember that what's called the CRA, the Community Reinvestment Act, still a lot around. But it was it was a way that the federal government or the banking institutions uh, tried to get at this redlining. Uh, so you got graded as a bank based on your community reinvestment, where you actually making mortgages in areas that used to be redlined. And of course, banks will never say they redlined anybody, but we know it, <laughs> right. it did. And so this is a great example of how you work with the public square for the public good from a Christocentric perspective. So there was a banker who uh, came to me. I have to go to, uh, we, we went to the same church and said, I'm getting, I'm getting protested every day. There's protesters outside our bank because we're not doing well in the CRA. We need to write these mortgages, but we can't write bad mortgages. We have to write mortgages to people that qualify. And uh, and so we said, well, we can help with that. So we started qualifying folks, hmm. getting their debt retired, helping them with some interim housing and so forth. And uh, and we're able to create then a housing um, a program called Neighborhood Housing Opportunities. It's now built over 300 homes wow. uh, for families that used to be in public housing. Well, the idea was we knew families that if they were nurtured could qualify for a mortgage, but we had to have a bank to write the mortgages that wouldn't be sold to a third party. So the bank that we first worked with guaranteed that they wouldn't sell because, you know, if banks sell the mortgages, they wouldn't sell ours. That means if a family got behind, they called us so we could work with the family. See well, what, what was going on where they're now behind their mortgage. So they don't lose their house during the, 2008, 2009 recession, mm-hmm. we had less than five foreclosures. Uh, and that's out of 250 homes because families had learned how to manage their funds well. It was an empowerment model 
But we couldn't have done that without the banking institution. Mm-hmm. And that wasn't Christian at all, but they, they, held, they, they held the money, right? Mm-hmm. You can't buy homes without a bank. Uh, and so we were able to, to work both sides of the street. On the street level, getting families ready, empowerment, building their capacity, and then being able to go to the bank and say, we've got a product that we think you can buy into. That's a great example. Uh, so that's just one example. The 911 Lockstad was another one with, with the... Uh, and now uh, the latest thing is this whole sorted, uh, sorted business of sex trafficking, human trafficking. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we have a ministry called Restore Corps under MLF, Memphis Leadership Foundation. And we are actually the West Tennessee point of contact for the governor's office. Uh, for all for hot spots, and so uh, so we're we're uh, uh, non ashamedly uh, Christocentric, but we can't do that work without being interfacing with government realities. Yeah, um, and uh, you know we're rescuing or not. You know, Rachel doesn't like to use word. She likes to word, use the word empowering mm-hmm. young ladies, typically young girls, some trans uh, kids. Uh, from a sordid business that is rampant in every one of our cities that people are not even aware of. Yeah. Um, so and and then Memphis in particular though is sort of a we're at the crossroads entry port way right, and then they get spread out. New Orleans is the worst. There's actually yeah, a right. pipeline from New Orleans to Memphis. Right. But we're sitting at the crossroads of two major interstates. Uh, there's yeah. a reason FedEx is in Memphis because it's in the yeah it's right in the middle uh, and uh, and so there's a lot but you know Knoxville has its problems uh, yeah. on the other side of the state Chicago New Orleans every city human trafficking and slavery is uh, a huge issue that is uh, tearing I mean tearing families apart and ruining kids' lives yeah. And now in your uh, role as president of the Global Network, you've also got a couple of initiatives that you have you know, helped create to you know, give to local leadership foundations that to me seem to represent Academy and Street as well. The one is Charities of Change, which you've mm-hmm. oh, yeah. had a huge, uh, so maybe talk a bit about that. And then maybe you and Noah can talk a bit about the network in the mentoring space which has been fun to watch for me because, you know, we always used to know how to do the relational thing, but we sort of were at arm's length with the data, you know, that needed to guide it or the best practice. And so I think both of those initiatives of the global office are representative of Academy and Street. So maybe start with Charity to Change. Yeah, Yeah, Charity to Change. I've got a wonderful grant from the Lee Endowment out of Indianapolis uh, that makes this possible for a three-year program. So what we we put together is a nine-month curriculum that is second to none of people from what I would call the academy. I mean, we got, you know, professor, a PhD from Princeton, professor Oberlin University, uh, a, a PhD from Fuller Seminary, uh, Ray Bakke, who's since passed away. So we had this wonderful curriculum. Oxford and James Allison. Yeah, James Allison. <laughs> yeah, Oxford for crying out loud. But we also have the street folk. Uh, we've got pastors that are actually doing development work or or, or we think about um, uh, you know folks that are doing good work in this area on the street along with the academy so we're talking about theology and we're talking about praxis um, and marrying those two in a phenomenal 
curriculum over nine months. And the whole intent is to help pastors in 15 of our cities where we have leadership foundations and, and up to 150 churches, how to take the theology of uh, the theology of the city, the theology uh, of what it means to love God and love neighbor, and putting the praxis of now how you move from charity, which is you know the Good Samaritan, uh, to systemic change. In other words, if I was think of charity to change. The Samaritan picks up the guy and takes him to the hotel. Change would, say, would, would straighten that highway so there wouldn't be robbers behind the boulders, right? Mm -hmm. That was an unsafe highway. Mm -hmm. uh, so change, change would be making the city of Jerusalem or Jericho change the city or have cops in places where so there wouldn't be people beat up on the side of the road. But charity was taking care of the, the immediate problem. Churches are great at charity. Not so much uh, when it comes to systemic change. So that's the whole point. So we go from this theological, I mean, heavy theological uh, on the front end to now how you take the theology and make that work in neighborhoods where you can bring about systemic change, particularly on the behalf of the marginalized. Uh, so it's, uh, it's a wonderful example of, of, of the academy, as it were, uh, and the street coming together. And then the, the, the whole mentoring, which you know are much more in tune with, mm -hmm. you know, we measure results. We, we're taking data. <laughs> we got to have the data because it's funded by the Department of Juvenile Justice. Yeah. You know, what, what's going on? How many kids are being mentored? What's the mentor to mentee ratio? What's the program look like? But what we're after is transformation and real transformation in kids' lives. So we got to have both. Both the transactional side of things, we've got to have the data, but the transformational side is what really gets us up in the morning as well. Yeah, you know, it's um, with the mentoring work and having had the chance to work with our network, it is, I mean, it's it's remarkable, right? It's it's 30 different local leadership foundations that are providing caring adult mentors um, to underserved kids, right? Kids that would typically not have access to uh, a mentor. And I think it fits so well with this whole, uh, what is it that Bill Milliken says, you know, it's relationships that change lives, not a program, right? And so I think we just intuitively, this is kind of like the street knowledge, we as a network know, you know, give, um, give a young person a meaningful relationship and it's going gonna, it's gonna to have an effect. It's, what I think we have, as we have gotten better and better and more, um, uh, a lot more experience in the mentoring space, you know, you begin to read some of the research and there is a lot of research and you do recognize, you know, there are, are particular ways in which you can uh, do that relationship, that mentoring relationship that does make it more transformational than other ways, right? There are actually ways that you can do mentoring relationships that potentially have the, the capability of doing more harm than good. And so that's been an interesting, our network as a whole has gotten very comfortable with um, and fluent in what are, what does the evidence say? You know, what, what are the researchers that are looking at this from the academy and studying what's effective in mentoring? What are they saying actually leads to a young person actually uh, being transformed, actually being better off uh, at the end of the mentoring relationship than they were at the beginning? And so 
it's been really fun to see uh, our whole network that, you know, we're doing lots of different things as it relates to caring for young people. Um, but despite that diversity have said, we are actually going to say yes to all of these evidence-based practices, the best we know around what's actually going to have a transformational effect. And then, yeah, getting really um, mature when it comes to collecting data to be able to actually better understand the impact we're having. So, it, yeah, that's been a fun one to see. You know, there is this kind of just doing, doing, uh, mentoring relationships well does require this street level uh, fluency, right, of knowing how to connect with kids. But there is a kind of um, rigor and feedback loop that kind of this dialogue with the academy provides. So that's a great example, Dave. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Larry, this is just like the the opening salvo here. We're uh, we're really really excited to have you as our uh, our newest uh, president, only third president in in uh, history, which is crazy. And uh, you've got you got some work ahead of you, but uh, hopefully you can carve out a little bit of time for a podcast episode here or there sure. to to have a conversation. And, um, well, I'm just maybe kind of end with this, Noah. And, yeah. and uh, Larry and I have had the chance now in my sabbatical, my working sabbatical, um, to be on the road. They together. don't see the air quotes, by the way. So we got to say that was in air quotes. <laughs> to, uh, to be on the road together. Uh, the first was with our Leadership Foundation in Cleveland. Uh, and then actually it was able to engage Akron uh, and Dayton as well. And then in a whole different world, uh, Philippi, West Virginia. Yeah, yeah. Um, and we won't go into all the details, but other than to say, uh, I think that both Larry and I walked away from both with a sense of a foretaste of what our relationship can look like uh, moving forward. Um, you, you know, nobody's naive enough uh, to believe that when you have a succession process, going now back to that initial, you know, image of uh, the relay race, that more often than not, uh, the baton doesn't get passed very well. Uh, and I think that one of the great graces in LF was the seamless way that Reed passed it on to me. Uh, and I am now hoping to do that with Larry. And I think the early returns for us was that uh, not only are we going to pass the baton off well, but that LF is going to be in a much, much stronger, um, better, you know, broader place because of Larry's uh, leadership. He's got a skill set that, you know, I could, you know, pray to Jesus for the rest of my life and I would never get those skills. And I recognize that. And I think in turn, you know, Larry has been very gracious to say, Dave, you know, here's some things that you do that we want you to continue to do. Uh, so the, the example I would give is that in Cleveland, uh, Larry, we probably had 120 people that Dan Colentone brought through to hear about LF. And uh, what Larry and I would do each session is I would get up and do something on the theology and the vision, um, you know, some of what we even talked about today. And then Larry mm -hmm. would follow up with, now here's what local leadership foundations are doing with that theology on the ground. And, you know, Dan, at the end of it, when he was reviewing the time, said, you know, that could not have gone better. And it was a perfect kind of, you know, mix of both, again, the academy, which I think I'm sort of inhabiting, uh, and for Larry, the street, which he inhabits uh, better. So anyways, encouraging story. That's great. Well, yeah, we are uh, we're grateful for this dialogue and that ongoing dialogue that you named, Dave. Um, 
And uh, yeah, we're grateful for you, Larry. And as I think you know, we end every one of our uh, City is Playground podcast episodes with what we call a Seeing the City is Playground recommendation, uh, something that just helps you see what we think uh, uh, is the way that God sees a city. Um, and it can be a poem or a book or a prayer or a practice or whatever you pick. So do you, by chance, have a... Uh, oh, yeah, I got cities, of cities, colon, playgrounds or battlegrounds, but Dave Hillis. Oh, I've heard of that Hammond. one. Yeah. And, uh, and then the other seminal book for me was really uh, Ray Bakke's The Urban Christian. Hmm. Uh, and it's, uh, I, I think it's still in print. Uh, <laughs> and then A Theology as Big as a City, his other book. Uh, yeah. Those were some of the first. But I mean... If anybody wants to connect, contact me about any, I've got a, I've got a treasure chest of great books about seeing the city as playground from great authors. So email me and I'll shoot you whatever you want me to shoot you. That is Perfect. great. Well, uh, thank you, Larry. Really uh, grateful for the recommendations, for your uh, knowledge and wisdom, and also, yeah, your leadership here on behalf of the LF Global Network. And uh until next time, we will uh, we'll see you again. So thanks, Dave. All right. Thank you, Noah.